Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. In an essay on the militant films of the Palestine Film Unit for the New York Review of Books, the critic Kaleem Hawa writes that Palestinian cinema has always been saddled with the psychic weight of colonization. Film offers liberatory possibilities, then. With the projection of moving images onto a screen, a people can imagine something different, something other. This week on the podcast, we sat down with Kaleem, who's also a film comment contributor, to discuss our recent home viewing, which, as it turned out, included a lot of Palestinian cinema. From the agitprop of Mustafa Abu Ali's 1974 film, They Do Not Exist, to the diasporic longing of Basma al-Sharif's home movies Gaza, to the biting satire and media criticism of Elia Suleiman. Our conversation covered a lot of fascinating ground. Check out the show notes on filmcomment.com for links to these films and more. So today we are so excited to have uh, a special guest who is actually uh, a part of the Film Comment family. He was an intern with Film Comment a couple years ago, and he's also a very well-published critic and does a variety of other cool and interesting things with his time. Kaleem, and do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Kaleem Hawa. Um, I'm a Palestinian writer and focused on film and uh, books. And Kaleem, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. We know that you uh, have been doing a lot of writing on Palestinian cinema and, you know, other kinds of cinema as well. But you curated a special series a few days ago with This Light Actually. Tell us a little bit, you know, about that series and how it came about. Yeah, so for for This Light Actually, there was uh, the idea to display sort of a compendium of of films about the Palestinian struggle uh, for liberation that had been banned or censored in various countries. Uh, So I basically put together a list of films that had been banned in the United States, uh, in Israel, Egypt, Singapore, Canada, and Spain. Um, I think what's underpinning that particular curation was that the, the, the sense that the cultural fight is actually quite important when it comes to, to Palestine and, and sort of the exceptionalism around uh, the colonial project that is occurring there. And, you know, emphasizing that uh, a lot of Palestinian media and art is um, constantly under uh, attack uh, or threat of erasure. And highlighting those films, I think, was an important thing to do, especially in the context of all that's been happening in the last month. Uh, do you want to let me highlight a couple of films and kind of talk about their histories? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think probably the most famous one, which the Palestine Film Institute, uh, which is a, a great platform, I would encourage everyone to check out. They basically release one film a week, uh, is the film Janine uh, Janine, which is a 2002 film from uh, Mohammed Bakri. Basically, the film is sort of documentary footage of families who had suffered during the Janine massacres that occurred where the IDF entered the town and the the director and the film were taken to court, uh, in in Israeli court, where essentially the IDF said that it was libel and the court sided with with the IDF and it was banned from being screened in Israel. So it was quite an important film 
it's clear from from the film that uh, the Israelis see the cultural fight as an extension of the military, political and economic fight that they're waging against Palestinian life. And so any sort of attempts to counter narrativize to uh, provide evidence for and support for the pain that's being experienced by Palestinians and the daily indignities that are being experienced by Palestinians is fought very strongly in, in Israeli society. Another film from the curation is uh, Canada Park, Park with No Peace, which I think was worth mentioning. It's a 1991 film that interviews a former resident of a village destroyed by Israel following the 1967 Palestinian Nexa to create Canada Park, which is sort of a, a new settlement that was funded in part by the Jewish National Fund, uh, but also as through a financing vehicle as a registered charity in, in Canada. And so it's sort of a fascinating look at how Western society is deeply complicit in the dispossession of the Palestinian people through the money that is fundraised for settler organizations in the U.S. and Canada, and how, you know, it doesn't get any more blatant than infrastructure projects that will bear the names of American donors, uh, Canadian institutions, etc. And so it was a documentary that was censored, and that sort of has taken on a life of its own um, in at least in Canadian uh, political advocacy circles. Was it censored in Canada? Yeah, I, I think they, they there was a documentary that was made to complement it. It was a it was a spot for the CBC or the, our uh, public broadcaster, uh, and there's a documentary that followed it in 2016 to sort of restore the memory of what occurred. It was recently removed from YouTube with um, copyright enforcement, and so it's it's like any trace of the spot is being erased. Huh. And I think that film is also in another series that we're going to talk about today, another screens series of films by Palestinian women. I believe Canada Park is also in that program, correct? Uh, Razan Al-Saleh has done uh, her own sort of short, which is a 2020 film called Canada Park that kind ah, of is, okay. yeah, it's her, it's her sort of showing through Google Maps what the the new space looks like and her reflecting on her sort of position as a Palestinian in exile living in Canada, unable to return to Palestine. Oh, so they're distinct films. Sorry. I Yes. Interesting. Yes, they're okay. distinct. I think it's like it's quite important in 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 Palestinian circles in Canada. And so ma- many people have written about it or or in this case produced films about it. Well, um I mean today we wanted to talk about some of the films that we've uh, you know, all been watching at home, sort of part of our at-home series. And I think we've all been watching sort of films in this space, you know, Palestinian and anti-colonial film. Uh, I'm yet to check out your series, Kaleem, so we'll we'll definitely do that and make sure to drop a link for listeners to check it out as well. But I did watch a film that you wrote about recently. When did you write uh, write your piece on the Palestine Film Unit for the New York Review of Books? That, that would have been last summer, yeah. Okay, yeah. And I, uh, I know Clint and I both read that recently, and it was really fascinating because it was a history I wasn't aware of. And then I saw They Do Not Exist, which, reading your piece, understood that a very important film in that early movement of sort of I don't know if, whether to call it militant films or uh, newsreel films or basically part of the struggle to complement, you know, the fight for independence with film and art, which, of course, has been such a tradition across various anti-colonial movements across the world. 
I was really struck by that. So it's by uh, Abu Ali Mustafa. Uh, it's in, made in 1974. And I guess it's kind of a vision of a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon. And it starts out as this these images of daily life in that camp, you know, children running around, people buying vegetables in markets. And a young girl is writing a letter to a fidayin or a, a, a guerrilla and sending him a little gift that social workers are basically ferrying to these guerrillas. And it's a, it's a towel and a piece of soap. And it's just, it's such a cute letter. And she says, I wish I had something better to give you. And then the film kind of switches gears to something more newsreel-esque as it captures the destruction of that camp by Israeli airstrikes. Uh, a lot of the people, uh, you know, that we've been witnessing, we assume that they're dead or they've lost their, you know, uh, homes. And you just see this like footage of rubble uh, and there's a sort of political speech overlaid it talking about, you know, uh, these strikes and the struggle for independence and I thought it was really interesting. There's like these intertitles that explicitly draw these connections, you know, of history, but also of solidarity between Vietnam, uh, Mozambique, uh, Native Americans, and, uh, you know, the Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And it's sort of like really place situating the Palestinian struggle within this tapestry that I was really struck by. Yeah, I I was really interested in the structure of the film, too. And I mean, the whole thing is it's almost episodic and there's different styles like this opening sequence is like cinema verite of children playing and stuff. And then it and this kind of it looks kind of staged. I'm sure it's probably staged of the uh, soldiers reading the letter with the voiceover of the of the child. And then uh, but there's these intertitles that pop up and, the, and they frame each section, each segment. And I know in your piece, Colleen, you write about how um, this film, well, well, it's propaganda. That's what the film unit was doing. Agitprop, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But another really interesting thing about this film is that at the end of the, at least the version that's on Ubu Web that you can see is like it, it cuts off at the very end and says that the last minute was missing because it had been dist- the copy that they'd been able to find whoever the whoever had restored the film, the last minute had been destroyed. And in your piece, you kind of address this and say that there's a version that you've seen where that last minute was restored. But that you preferred the the truncated right. version, which was really interesting, yeah. So what happens at the end? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, We're I'm, on tenter I just de- I, I, wonder, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like your research into this film and like the history of it and the history of of this group of filmmakers and also the destruction of the destruction of these films they're they're hard to to see yes absolutely and that's and that's by design and i mean i think the like forms of i guess historical it's all sort of the same through line of of attempts to um erase the palestinian narrative and whether it was through sort of the physical destruction of of archives and film centers to uh, modern censorship in the form that we're accustomed to it, but also through violence. I mean, in in Gaza just this week, they have destroyed many centers of cultural life, famous bookstores and and archives. And including the the center, mm-hmm. uh, but the center yes, run by the Jassir sisters, who I believe brought They Do Not Exist 
to Palestine, right? Like they, uh, one of them, Anne Marie was responsible for um, finding and restoring the film. And I think that their center was affected by strikes recently. I didn't know that. And that's really heartbreaking to hear. And it's, uh, it's all by design. I mean, so that's why it's in- incredibly important that we try and preserve the stories in, in these works. And uh, yeah, I mean, to give a, a little bit of context. So I mean, what we're talking about is something called the Palestine Film Unit, which was really uh, just, it was, it was founded in Jordan in 1968 by three film students, uh, Mustafa Abu Ali, Hani Jawariye, and Salafa Jaddala. And Salafa, who had studied in Egypt, is considered by some people to be the first Arab camera woman. They were kind of ragtag, interested in producing essentially propaganda materials and materials to support the fight, filming and shooting um, the Fedayeen in their training camps and also sometimes to, to take photos that, that would be used in posters if, if the fighters uh, were martyred in battle. And so that was kind of the initial vision behind the, the PFU. Once the Palestinian leadership moved to Beirut, uh, the PFU was subsumed into the sort of the larger apparatus of the PLO and its sort of uh, unified media approach to waging what they felt was a, a global sort of narrative or cultural battle to convince the world of the justice of the Palestinian cause. And so it's interesting when you mention the transnational sort of connections to other liberation struggles. And I think that's also very explicitly by design because Palestinians sort of conceive of their struggle as simply one arm of a, of a global struggle against settler colonialism. And, and this is both narrative, but also material because the individual filmmakers from across a lot of different parts of the global south would would train together would work together would produce films on behalf of one another i'm thinking about uh, the palestinians even lending their cameras to the uh, dofar rebellion uh, filmmakers and so there's a lot of intentional sort of commonality in the narrative and imagery choices which are as as clint pointed out i mean they're propagandistic they're often tacky heavy-handed yeah i found this film to not be as heavy-handed as I expected it to be, though. There's also this strange sequence that's really beautiful, too, of the bombing with, like, a string quartet, a famous piece of music that I could not identify off the top of my head playing over the top of it. And the incongruity is really, like, somehow moving. It was an unexpected choice. Yeah, I have to say that I was also struck by what I felt was, like, almost a degree of subtlety, for the lack of a better word, because... Uh, these kinds of, you know, more militant film units, uh, you know, anti-colonial uh, and propagandist films tend to use didacticism, right? Like if you look, you know, historically or transnationally, they are meant to be heavy handed. They're meant to articulate a cause. This film does not really do that, you know, as abrasively. And there's almost like, to me, it seemed like there was a sense that, well, these images would speak for themselves, like this rubble would speak for itself. Uh, you know, in the in the speech that's kind of overlaid over the images of the rubble, you know, it's kind of stated we, you know, we want peaceful coexistence. We want to establish a democratic state. I don't know. There's a lot of care in the verbiage, in the images. And it's sort of like, I don't know, there seems to be like an appeal to to people that you see what we're talking about, right? Like, we don't need to push this into your face. And that speech is a press conference, is a recording of a press conference too, which is, so it's not as if, it's not as if it's a pre-recorded speech from a spokesperson for the PLO. I mean, that very well may, may be the case, but it is like, 
filmed in a, as if it's documentary, as if the camera person and the filmmakers are part of a group of news people recording this speech. And then uh, it's edited uh, into, into this uh, montage of the destruction, basically. It's interesting you say that because people forget that uh, a lot of the Palestinian liberation groups were, I mean, led by um, intellectuals, writers, uh, poets, and being, you know, the popular front for the liberation of Palestine, which, uh, to your point, uh, Devika, is, uh, is it's a, a secular group interested in it, like a, a unified democratic state for, for Jews and Palestinians and a secular Marxist group and, uh, you know, includes... Uh, Dr. George Habash, who's the leader quite famously, but also Hassan Kanafani, one of the most important Palestinian resistance figures, and both like the former famous orator and, and Kanafani as well, an orator in his own right, but also a writer and poet. And um, so uh, uh, it's not surprising that there's an acuity with language, I would say. And they received support from a lot of the student union movements internationally. And so there was like uh, a lot of work done to translate the films and to make sure that the messaging was successfully communicated for the context that was uh, it was intended for. Uh, we also haven't talked about the title either, which is They Do Not Exist. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's humorous. I mean, I find um, uh, I find a lot of the materials well, chilling. Produce... It's like humorous, but also like, well, yeah, it's <laughs> the source of the title is a quote, right? From Golda Meir, um, where she says it's, it was not as though there was a Palestinian people in Palestine. Uh, they did not exist. And this, I mean, reflects sort of a longstanding mythology in, in, in Israel that they sort of came and made the desert bloom and that there wasn't a people with its own independent, you know, culture and economy and uh, history that was already living there. I oftentimes like I don't even love to talk about it because I, I find like we don't really need to give oxygen to the to blatant lies. But I think that their approach is quite funny because it's. You mean the film, the film's approach? Yeah, the film's approach and, and to take that title and be like, well, yeah, we don't exist because uh, you're killing us. It's also very interesting that that statement is used and, you know, but the film takes place in Lebanon, right? In a refugee camp, like in this like makeshift community. I, I don't know. That was very interesting, too, because it's showing the destruction of this like makeshift community that has been set up as like a temporary uh, state in lieu of the actual land. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's, it's making the point, which is that the, the Israel sort of is waging a global war on, on Palestinian life. So not just on, on Palestinians in Gaza and in West Bank, but also Palestinian citizens of Israel who, you know, are being beaten in the streets uh, in the last month, uh, Palestinians in the refugee camps in, in Jordan and Beirut, as exemplified in this film, but also Palestinians in the diaspora when, you know, Israeli um, military train police here in North America who then go on to violently uh, arrest Palestinian protesters in, in New York City this week. You know, it's it's all sort of part and parcel of, of uh, the same approach, which is like a deep attack on Palestinian life wherever it can be found. And Godard uh, worked with Mustafa Abuli, right? Or at least, or, or visited that particular camp in order to make a film that I guess was, uh, never came to fruition. It was an ab abortive attempt to make a, a film that they were going to call Until Victory, Palestine Will Win. Um, it's part of the Ziga Vertov group. And so Godard and, and Goran visited uh, the Fedayeen in Jordan and were intending to make a film, but then after Black September, a lot of the the protagonists that, that they had intended for the film, if you could call them that, uh, 
were sort of um, were either killed or displaced or couldn't really be traced. So the the, the film was never was never made. And then Godard reflected on it in a later film, uh, ECA Ayer, uh, here and elsewhere. Um, where he sort of talks about that whole film project and and also uses some of the footage that was taken from early attempts to to talk about the Palestinian struggle. So I found uh, going through this piece also that this was one of the few films that I was able to locate online. And we kind of talked about this already. And we talked about the fact that the last minute was gone. What happens in the last what minute, Kaleem? <laughs> and I'm still waiting for you it's to so tell me. No, because it's a cliffhanger. I'll tell you after. I'll tell you after. I mean, it's it's it was destroyed. The film was is damaged, and uh, I don't know. Can you can you talk us through like what happened to this film? What the history of this film is sort of an example. You know, it's one film in a large archive. It, there's no there's no single story to how Palestinian cinema has sort of been chipped away, but some of the films that were kept uh, in Beirut uh, during the Israeli invasion were destroyed. They kind of ransacked the, the archives or it was destroyed in shelling. It's unclear, though Mustafa Ali did ship out hundreds of rushes of unedited film uh, from Beirut before that happened to actually be stored by the Italian Communist Party in Rome. Emily Jasser, the Palestinian filmmaker, who's Anne-Marie Jasser's, I think, um, sister, along with a German filmmaker, worked together to get access to that archive and help digitize what the surviving reels and made a different film called Tata But so that's one example. Another example is uh, films would get seized in Israeli incursions and, and are now stored in the uh, archives of the, the IDF, where they keep a lot of uh, cultural materials that have been uh, taken from Palestinians. Yeah, there's there's many different sort of archives that all have their own experiences. But this particular film, I was reading notes written by Anne-Marie Jassir, and she talked about screening this film in Jerusalem in 2003 and basically smuggling the director in a car, like through hills and on foot and sort of because he didn't get permission to visit Jerusalem, even though he lives in Ramla and... Um, I thought that was really fascinating, too. And that then he got to see the film, right, for the first time in decades. Yeah, it's uh, quite a devastating story because he was born in Palestine and, and was not allowed to, was then living in Ramallah and was not allowed to go to Jerusalem, which is his capital city, and hadn't been able to go and obviously hadn't seen his film many, many years. We're talking about Mustafa Bali, who was one of the, the filmmakers in the Palestine Film Unit. And so they arranged for a screening of the film in, in 2003, and they and they brought, brought Mustafa to Jerusalem sort of illegally. The occupation doesn't allow certain classes of Palestinian life uh, to access different parts of Palestine. And, and again, that's something that's sort of by design to keep Gazans separate from West Bank's uh, West Bank Palestinians and to keep West Bank Palestinians separate from those who are residents of Jerusalem or citizens of Israel. I mean, they're all they're all Palestinians. You know, my grandmother is older than the state of Israel. Like all of this is a new construct uh, intended to divide Palestinian life. And essentially, the they decided to screen the film and brought him there to watch uh, to watch it, which I'm, I'm sure was a quite an emotional experience for him. Both of his colleagues in the film unit at this point would have been would have been dead. The screening of this film and the, you know, uh, the search by contemporary artists to find and restore and sort of revisit their often lost um, filmic and cultural history, it brings to mind a film that uh, I just saw yesterday by Basma Al-Sharif, who is a contemporary Palestinian 
um, diasporic artist, I believe. And hers is one of the films screening in uh, another gay as journals, another screen platform. They're doing this month-long screening of Palestinian films. It's really great, free and subtitled. And, uh, you know, they're also collecting donations for all sorts of aid efforts. So definitely encourage people to check the CDs out. But I was really struck by Basma Al-Sharif's film, O Persecuted. It's a very short film. It's like 10 minutes, I believe, 10 or 11 minutes. And it actually kind of depicts the excavation of an older film, uh, you know, an older film that was recently restored called Our Small Houses by Kasim Hawal. And it does something very interesting where you like watch snatches or little snippets of the film and you see a hand removing these layers of grime or paint from on top of the image. And slowly the image is, uh, gets superimposed with this this figure of a woman belly dancing, also like an archival black and white figure of a woman belly dancing. And then it cuts, does this crazy cut to footage of, I guess, modern day, you know, the youth of uh, Israel and Palestine partying, uh, you know, in in clubs and in, in pools. Tel Aviv. In oh, Tel in Tel Aviv. Yeah. Okay, yeah. It's almost just like, yeah, like a, like unhinged hedonistic madness. That happens in like the last maybe two minutes of the film. But the, up, up until then, it's very intense. And the, and the sound design is the mu- music, if you want to call it that, is this like industrial grind. It sounds... It's very, yeah, it's noise almost, yeah. I, the credits said it's by Riot Nation Abba Gabba. I believe that is the over the dance sequence. Oh, that's an amazing really, name! Like, <laughs> which is this? Like, in, you know, I don't know what the genre is. There's like too many subgenres of that kind of music. <laughs> it's like super intense, fast, like party, uh, but aggressive, aggressive party music. But up until then, uh, it's almost impossible to really make out the images of the original film that she's projecting onto a wall and then obscuring. And there's somebody you get snatches of somebody painting on a wall where the film is being projected. And the idea is that, I mean, the idea, it's pretty conceptually clear to me that this film is being excavated and also obscured. And it's yes. this uh, cultural artifact, this document of a people that is um, being disappeared and and then uncovered and then disappeared again and then uncovered. We catch images here and there of different of faces, of people. I mean, I also just want to say, like, the the snippets that we do see from the film, you know, you see the subtitles sometimes, like Clint was saying, they're obscured and then visible. And it's a film in which the people of a, of a city or town are being told, tomorrow you'll wake up, you'll wear your uniform, you're a soldier, or maybe you're a worker. You will go out there and you will serve your nation and you you might die. You might have to make a choice between key, killing or being killed. So it's very much uh, a film that seems to be made in this moment of revolution and organizing and where people were dealing with these life and death choices and especially the youth were being in a very kind of, uh, I would say, Soviet. It has this like, at least, again, this is based on the little snippets you see in this 10 minute short film, this very like Soviet kind of messaging and imagery, you know, addressing yeah, addressing the people as soldiers in one or the other fight. Um, and so then the switch is very jarring. And on some level, it seems almost like 
too pointed. Like I, I was wondering, is the point that this is what the history, you know, the historical fight has been, and now it's kind of uh, dissolving in this like consumerism and hedonistic hedonistic well, oh, frenzy. I read it as like the hedonistic. It's like the hedonistic frenzy is like the final erasure. It's the it's they're showing the fruits of a of a still incomplete but marching closer to completion colonial project. So on uh, you know they the the mobilization of Palestinians to fight against colonization yields dance trans music festivals and dance clubs in Tel Aviv. It's in a way like hearkening to like the relationship to land and to place like you know it's jarring because there's no Arabic music being listened to. So you have the belly dancer playing, you know, dancing to Arabic music. And then you have, you know, these guys talking about creating the, the biggest dance festival in all of Europe in Tel Aviv. Um, I also thought, I mean, it's very much a punk film because I think in some ways she's, she's suggesting that those dancers, I mean, they're, they're, they're the new soldier, right? A military service mandatory for um, Israeli citizens. These people are also fighting. I mean, you've got the images of, of uh, the Palestinian fighters who were who were Falahim farmers who ha- were forced to take up arm uh, arms in in response to Israeli uh, military incursions, and then you sort of have what sort of contemporary uh, military looks like, which is a bunch of kids like dancing in a club to European music. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Another one of Bezna Sharif's films that uh, um, I th- that I honestly uh, prefer, I think is really brilliant, is Home Movies Gaza, which is um, also screening the um, another gaze curation of Palestinian uh, women filmmakers. Which I don't think we said the title for a free Palestine films by Palestinian women, which is, yeah, the title of that series. Yeah, it's awesome. And uh, yeah, Home Movies Gaza, I mean, it's very hard to watch. It's an experimental film. It's showing different parts of Gaza, the drive along the coast, uh, which, I mean, it's a really heartbreaking film for me to watch at this particular moment because of the absolute destruction and death that has been rained down upon the people of Gaza, not just uh, this spring, but for years. And, uh, you know, I have I have family in Gaza, uh, and it's very difficult to watch scenes of everyday life juxtaposed with infrastructures that are meant to hem people in. So I, I always have just like the the image of the film that sticks out to me most is, is from the start when they're driving. You see all the houses and the, the fences and the walls that are sort of there obscuring the cityscape in, in Gaza. That opening shot is like a tracking shot out of a car window for like four minutes. The other really incredible thing about it is that maybe at like the last half a minute or so, you see some children come by and you realize that the whole thing is being run backwards. I know. I mean, that that honestly was so amazing. I was wary of mentioning it on the podcast because, you know, being caught by surprise by it was such a like 
It, it was such a thrill. Yeah. I mean, because I'm watching, it's hypnotic. You know, it's this drive through the street. Suddenly you see a guy, a kid walking backwards. And it, you know, and it took me a second to reorient myself. And I was like, oh, this whole thing is running backwards. And it does seem like that is a preoccupation of Al-Sharif, you know, the idea of uh, turning back time or, you know, the question of return, like temporal versus spatial return. And that's also kind of a theme in Farther Than the Eye Can See, which is also... Um, included in this series and that sort of narrates a woman's exodus from Jerusalem to Egypt but in reverse and kind of does this experimentation again with um, scenes that are run backwards superimpositions with an English language narration that scrambles the chronology of her story even further I have I'm not familiar with like all the Palestinian work out there but it does seem like this the question of temporality and return and chronology seems to recur in so many of, of these films. And I was wondering if you had, if that is like this like structuring principle of a lot of art uh, being made right now. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think when I think about temporality um, and the interplay of um, time passing uh, in Palestinian films, I think of, uh, Ilya Soleiman, or I think of Kamal Al Jaffrey, who do who have very different projects, but who are both like kind of interested in that. It's 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 I I mean I think it's quite common to focus on in Palestinian cinema, um, just because if you have a particular consciousness searing event like the Nakba, um, the Palestinian catastrophe of nineteen forty eight, then how do you avoid everything becoming just a ticking clock from that point, right? A response to the passing of time since that first catastrophe and all the ongoing catastrophes. And so, you know, actually I think it's quite brilliant to be reversing time or playing with time in Palestinian cinema to suggest that, um, you know, Palestinians are returning, time is returning and that it's not linear and there might not be justice in this world, but there, there will be one within one of the worlds. I think also memory and that, and like, even as we were talking about archives and the destruction of archives and that, and that like returning, uh, noting the importance of memory and going back and excavation is very important to Al-Sharif. I think that's something that struck me when I'm watching her work. There's a Mahmoud Darwish quote in the introduction on another screen. I don't decide to represent anything except myself, but this self is full of collective memory. So you have this diasporic artist living in Los Angeles and Berlin, who's very much an individual, but is suffused with this memory and is constantly running it back, running back the tape. Home Movies Gaza also had that really interesting kind of infrared technique. I don't know if whether to call it infrared really, but, um, you know, these images of uh, farm animals, chickens and horses and plants with with these distortions on top, you know, which turns them sort of neon and and kind of digital e, for the lack of a better word. A, and what is it called? It's an after effects thing where you're using like a green screen effect. That was really interesting because it like the images look very real in a sense, in the sense that they are images of domesticity, and um, you know, it seems like it's a family farm and. And images that represent a relationship with land, you know, there's also, well, there's also scenes at a port or or at least at a shore with boats docked, but they, they are all images of like life lived with the, these material connections. 
But then there are these digital artifacts that make you realize that make you think that they are maybe projections. I mean, they, that these are images in someone's head, you know, like they kind of untether them from reality. And um, I don't know, just a very, I think the Muhammad uh, Darwish quote that you mentioned, Clint, really gets at, gets at what the film is doing for me because it's so rooted in a particular person's like memory and perspective and how memory especially in exile can like distort your images you know of home can change them can loosen them and it's kind of depicting that but also in a way that feels much more expansive than what one would consider subjective art you know yeah the the use of the use of home cinema or family recordings i mean the most recent film by uh kamal al-jafri is uh um an unusual summer, which I watched at the Toronto Palestine Film Festival, but I think is screened in a bunch of different places, and it's sort of comprised of recordings of outside his old family home in Remli, uh, and uh, sort of a, a, a video camera that's pointed at the street that is sort of recording in perpetuity, and he cuts together different scenes of life in the town from that particular perspective of that particular neighborhood and he'll do sort of like he'll like stop the footage or add titles and, and say you know this is this was a neighbor that I remember growing up to clarify though it he doesn't set up the camera right it's a camera his father set up like many years ago and he's he found the tapes and so he's it's it's interesting because it's it's a found footage film and that that way and this and he he's watching it with his son um so you oftentimes will hear the over you'll hear the the conversations between him and his son as they're watching the footage that you the viewer are also watching it's quite trippy i mean uh it also felt trippy to be watching oh persecuted on a projector because you're i was watching it on a projector screen and then they've got the old film on on a projector screen in the film that she's drawing over it was yeah it's which is not immediately like obvious until like, yeah, it's deep in. Um, yeah. The collective memory thing is also seems to be uh, what you're talking about again with this. What was the film? Uh, an unusual summer. An unusual summer. Yeah. This last year. Yeah. I also I, vouch for it. It's, I, I, I really love it too. And it's, it's very interesting because it's basically a feature length film. That's just this old surveillance footage that his, yeah. you know, dad <laughs> collected because someone was vandalizing their car. So his dad put up a camera to try and catch the culprit. And there's like months and months of just footage of this parking lot and this one street. And you see these like grainy figures move past. And it's so creepy and mundane at the same time. I mean, it's really, I mean, it's about surveillance in that way. And. But he's turning it into something about documentation, it sounds like too, right? It is, but it's. I, I don't know what's interesting is it's like almost like a whodunit to begin with, right? Because you you open with this premise that this is why the camera was set up. And there's all this commentary that he's providing, uh, Al Jafari's providing, I guess, and also explaining to his son, like using that to explain how life was, you know, and who these people were that he grew up with. And you're constantly like, is who's that dude? You know, why did that guy just touch the car? Like, why did this person turn around and come back? And it's like it, the conjuring. It, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's contextualized by the fact that the many of these Palestinian towns and 
uh, villages are being fundamentally altered by the passage of time and by the Israeli state's sort of uh, ongoing and active dispossession of Palestinian life from their from their homes. And Ramle is an is an uh, Arab neighborhood, right? It's in Israel, but it's it's in Israel, but it's uh, yeah, it's, um, I would say probably majority Palestinian citizens mm. and quite an important. Uh, city from the perspective of, of resistance and historically. And so, you know, this footage is a snapshot at a moment in time that reflects, uh, you know, what the, a place looked like and the ongoing sort of dispossession has continued apace since then. So like the the sort of lot where the the, the park where the, the, the tree is that you can see from, from his dad's um, apartment is no longer there, for instance. He remarks on that in the in the narrative. And I mean, I guess in some ways, like it's a depiction of a type of ruin, you know, it's not like, you know, destroyed concrete and dust and that sort of thing, but it's, it's a ruin nonetheless. And you can sort of append a lot of understanding of uh, Palestinian history on the ruins of those places. And I think that's like a thematic that comes up a lot in his, in his work. Um, did either of you watch the film Dahiat al-Barid, District of the Post Office, the Rosalind Nashibi film on another screen. It's just, it's a short, it's seven minutes long and, and I guess it's from 2002. It's like a very much kind of uh, cinema verite, 16 millimeter, like really beautiful photography um, just of this neighborhood and this area around this post office. But it just sort of lingers on the destruction of the neighborhood and like what is and the changes in the neighborhood, but also like the people just going about their lives in this place where things are like blocks are basically rubble now. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's just what, as you were talking about it, that it, I was reminded of that film, which I'd kind of, I watched early, early on when I was starting to dig into this, uh, another screen series. Um, I'd recommend that one. It's also just, uh, quite, quite beautiful. And that also reminds me of something I think, um, Kalim, you you wrote in your New York Review of Books piece about like some of the older films. Uh, this you said this about older films, but I think to some extent we can say this about these newer films too. They are cinema, but there's something more practical uh, undergirding a lot of these films too, right? Just the desire to record, just the desire to preserve images of the past, to preserve records of change. Um, you know, and I know that uh, Clint and I were talking about this uh, Razan Al Salah film, and you mentioned another one of her films earlier, uh, Kaleem, and uh, it uses Google Maps, which of course is like this fabricated image of a place, like the Google Maps view. But all these different attempts at actually mapping something out, you know, I mean, so it's cinematic, but there's something so like practical, whether it's just recovering something, preserving something, creating a sense of a shape, giving a shape to something that like desperately needs to be seen. Yeah, for sure. But it's not just the preservation. I mean, I think it's also a, um, a roadmap for resistance. Um, you made me think of the also from the Another Gaze series, uh, the film, The Silent Protest, Jerusalem from 1929. So this is, it's a short, and it's about, in 1929, uh, Palestinian women who launched a women's movement marching to Jerusalem uh, to hold a demonstration at the British High Commissioner's office to combat the his bias against 
against the Arabs um, during the mandate period. And, you know, it's, it's, that is both a historical record, as you put it, but also an injunction on future boycotts, on protests, and on strikes. And we're seeing right now um, a national strike uh, amongst Palestinians uh, across all of the land um, in, in Israel and uh, in Palestine, West Bank, and Gaza. And I think like films like that sort of remind uh, uh, Palestinians that there is uh, a, a lineage to this resistance that is older oftentimes than the state of Israel itself. We've been talking about the past and about archiving and preserving. I have to say some of my favorite films, um, not just in this, in the Another Screen series, but like some of my favorite uh, short films um, of the last few years are the films of Larissa Sansur, who takes such a different approach. It's, you know, these futuristic uh, sci-fi films and particularly talking about a space exodus um, uh, nation estate and in the future they ate from the finest porcelain and they're so clever playful and at the same time like um, very politically astute but you know they're doing something different from the films that we've been talking about in that they're trying to like envision impossibilities they're trying to envision you know these um revisionist histories, you know, or revisionist visions of the future. Um, so I love Nation Estate because it's just such a, it's such a strange premise. And it just made me think of like colonialism and imperialism are such go-to themes in science fiction, but rarely do they talk about actual ongoing colonialisms and imperialisms. You know, it's always like some kind of distanced, fabricated version. Like Star and- Wars. Yeah, yeah. And but that kind of like occupation and finding the other and the encounter with the other and you know these things are happening right now in displacement. And so that's why I love that the film Nation Estate and you know the basic idea is that it imagines a vertical solution um to the occupation and so basically it's like I guess Palestine is this giant skyscraper. And each floor is a different city or neighborhood or part uh, of Palestine. And this woman sort of, we just witness her like entry into the space and she goes through its various levels. She has to like use her passport and this uh, card that is basically the Palestine flag that has a graphic of the Palestine flag on it. And she has to use it like, you know, like at a hotel room, you have those um, keys. fob, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so she's kind of going through this space, it's various levels, it's adver- there are advertisements that are very like airport ad-like, uh, you know, for, for water sourced from Fiji or something. And it's such a unique vision. There are these ready-to-eat films, very, again, like airport-style meals, you know, where you press a button and it's, it's I guess, traditional like local food and it, it's just like instantly ready. And she goes to this room sterile you know completely white and sterile and glass and plastic and she opens her blinds and suddenly you look out to this this the skyline of Palestine it's just I mean not only is it is it like first of all such a to me it's such a trippy idea you know um this idea that we're just gonna uh, why don't we just you know build a city in the sky but it also is showing how 
I don't know, the the distance from land is a sort of like chasm that has to be bridged for a sense of home. I mean, the more she rises up into the air, the more it feels like she's in a placeless place. You know, it just loses all sense of specificity, all sense of, um, I don't know, all sense of like, yeah, home or being. It feels like an airport and an airport is a non-place, you know? And I was really struck by that, like, um, and you know, her other film, A Space Exodus, is like, uses like music from 2001, A Space Odyssey, and, uh, you know, the kind of the uh, audio from the moon landing to depict like censor herself landing on the moon and planting a Palestinian flag. And again and again, I don't know, there's even though these films are set in like this seemingly plastic future, what they really are evoking is this melancholic longing for one's connection to one's land uh, and the material like ideas of home. Yeah. It's, I mean, you're, you're, what you're describing sort of like Arab futurism is like getting is something that's being talked about increasingly. There was like kind of a movement in art practice towards having something like Gulf futurism. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's, um, I, I like censors films for sure. Uh, I liked in vitro, um, her most recent one. And uh, I mean, maybe to, to summarize a little bit, aside from the Arab futurism, we've talked a bit about like um, Palestinian cinema as like the resistance cinema as one category, cinema of exile is another, the post-Oslo victim cinema, which we try not to talk too much about. Of course, the one that we didn't talk a lot about is um, media criticism. It sort of oftentimes blends elements of humor and uh, uh, footage from, from uh, uh, Western media, oftentimes, or and 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 sometimes media from the Arab world to make a to make a critique of uh, um, modes of communication and how they're used uh, with regards to the Palestinian struggle. Um, do you want to? What are some examples? Uh, do you have anything in mind that you want to that you wanted to shout out? Maybe uh, would say introduction to the end of an argument. That, that that's a good one. I mean, for people to kind of get a sense of what 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 I mean by that. But like, it's sort of uh, it's it's that's a film by Ilya Suleiman and, and Jay Saloum, which sort of cobbles together footage from from Western media from Hollywood uh, to show the Orientalizing depictions of the Arab and how they can manufacture consent uh, on the, on the topic of Palestine. Um, but I think they're necessary because there's uh, a whitewash of of Palestinian history and culture that occurs in dominant media. Um, I'm thinking of most recently the film uh, The Human Factor that isn't is a, uh, um, is about the Oslo peace process uh, and it's directed by an Israeli filmmaker. Um, and it's just a really really bad film. Uh, and for some reason has has received a lot of plaudits from a lot of, you know, quote unquote, respected uh, film, film writers. And it's kind of been, it's kind of been head spinning for me to watch the reviews of this film come in, because it's like, are, are we watching completely different films or have people, are people's understanding of what's happening in Palestine just so um, disjointed from reality that they can watch something like this, which is essentially um, like eulogizing and, and slightly triumphalist about um, the Oslo Peace Accords and talking about uh, America's involvement in the Middle East and, and watch this and say, yes, this is what we need, an antidote for our divided times and an injunction for peace. Um, it's it's quite, 
it's, it's really disturbing. I think like, uh, I think Palestinians have, have had to invest a lot of time and effort in creating their own alternative sort of support ecosystems for media precisely because it's been so difficult for um, our, our narrative to get the oxygen that um, it deserves. I'm interested in uh, this idea that you kind of mentioned about using satire and humor as a form of critique. How do you think one can balance rage and humor? Or does rage become kind of focused into like a biting satire and humor? Yeah, I mean, the humor is like, uh, I mean, Ilya Soliman does does humor very well. I find his films are really funny, but it's also um, almost a self-deprecating humor or humor about like, it's more about absurdity. Because really, frankly, the apartheid system that has been imposed on Palestinians is an absurd system. When you think about the sort of apparatuses and bureaucracy and infrastructures of oppression that are being used, um, they're absurd. There's no other explanation for it. And and so I think like you have to kind of make make light of it some ways um, to help like break through the 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 affectively to to to, to reach people to under to understand what the occupation does to people. I mean, there is. You're so right. I mean, there's just like this Kafkaesque comedy to it, right? Like uh, the fact that people can't move, people can't. It, like the director of uh, They Do Not Exist, the fact that he can't go to his hometown, which is 15 kilometers away, you know? I mean, yeah. there's all these little bureaucratic things that, if you look at it one way, are just absurd and just seem like this comedy of errors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think then the humor becomes like a, an affective tool, but the the sort of objective uh, or sort of the way that the rage or, or sadness is is focused as as in in the form of energies is is a commitment to resist and um, that includes for for our Western audience members a full economic and academic and cultural boycott uh, to until things change and so I think like if you're a media worker or someone involved in film who's listening to this podcast like. Yeah, Palestinian film both has like aesthetic and political qualities, and hopefully the 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 obligation that comes with caring about Palestinians and the Palestinian cause. And I just want to mention that Elia Suleiman's films, four of his films, are screening for free online, starting May twenty first, ending May thirtieth at the Arab Film and Media Institute. Uh, we'll add a link, but just wanted to mention another another good streaming option at the moment. Thank you so much for joining, Kaleem. Thank you guys for having me. And I have to say, this is a very cool, like, at-home episode because we talked about home, like, the concept of home in so many ways. I feel like at-home has this metaphorical... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so true. All right, thanks. All right, thanks, Kaleem. Thank you, guys. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.